Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Old Mohawk Road is a winding, two-lane road just outside Springfield, Oregon. Trees line the road, providing a shadowy canopy. At night, it gets especially dark and quiet, with only the occasional car passing through. It's the kind of road you might not want to be stuck on alone after the sun's gone down. Dangerous strangers might be lurking. So on the night of May 19, 1983, when a slender young blonde rushed into Mackenzie Willamette Hospital, claiming that she and her three children had been shot on Old Mohawk Road, it was a nightmare come true. The young woman, a 27-year-old named Diane Downs, said that a shaggy-haired man had flagged her down and demanded her car. When she denied him her keys, He leaned in and shot Diane and all three kids. Diane diverted his attention and managed to drive off. When the Downs family arrived at the hospital, the children were rushed into the emergency room. Diane lingered by her car. She was calm. She didn't cry. While her kids fought for their lives, Diane had only a single bullet wound in her arm. The police began their search for the shaggy-haired man, but suspicions arose that the gunman was much closer to the children than a burly stranger. In fact, many suspected the gunman might be the children's own mother. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the ParCast Network. Today, we're talking about Diane Downs, a woman who was convicted of shooting her own three children in 1983 as part of her twisted pursuit of love. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. In 1983, shortly after 10 p.m., Diane arrived with her children at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital, claiming they had been shot by a shaggy-haired stranger. But after the police learned of Diane's unstable mental state and unhealthy relationships with men, they drew one conclusion. Diane had tried to murder her own children. In part one, we'll talk about Diane's early life, her marriage to Stephen Downs, her multiple affairs and pregnancies, and her final affair that led to the shooting and her arrest. In part two, we'll talk about the investigation, her conviction, and Diane's relationship with the child she gave birth to after her trial. 
Diane Downs was born Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson in Phoenix, Arizona on August 7, 1955. She was the oldest of five children born to Wes and Willa Dean Fredrickson. Elizabeth, as she was known as a child, was always on the move. The Fredricksons struggled with money, and Wes needed to travel to look for consistent work. They usually lived in towns around Phoenix, often on farms. This nomadic lifestyle very likely wore Elizabeth down. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. Several studies have shown that moving often during childhood can have a negative effect on people as they grow. In a 2010 study by the American Psychological Association, researchers found that the more people moved as children, the more likely they were to report lower life satisfaction and psychological well-being in adulthood. They also found that people who moved frequently as children had fewer quality relationships as adults. Those findings would prove to be true for Diane later in life, as she struggled to connect with others. But even as a child, Elizabeth reported feeling lonely and that she was bullied often. When talking about her childhood, she said, quote, I was an introvert, and I did a lot of listening and watching of people. As I grew, I began to make a distinction between what I liked about life and what I didn't like, end quote. Compared to extroverts, introverts suffer even more from moving often during childhood. The study's lead author, Dr. Shigeo Oishi, said, quote, moving a lot makes it difficult for people to maintain long-term close relationships. This might not be a serious problem for outgoing people who can make friends quickly and easily. Less outgoing people have a harder time making new friends, end quote. And Elizabeth did have a hard time. She said, quote, I had no confidence. I was very shy, real quiet, and passive. I hate to sound like Charlie Brown, but I was the last one to find out about anything or go anywhere." End quote. Things did settle down a bit when Elizabeth was 11 years old. That year, in 1966, her father Wes found a steady job with the U.S. Postal Service, and her mother, Willa Dean, found a job also with the post office as a clerk. Unfortunately, this stability offered little comfort as her home life wasn't much happier than her social life. Elizabeth lived in a lonely household, one where Willa Dean spent more time doling out affection to her husband instead of her children. As a child, Elizabeth would often spend afternoons longing for her mother to spend time with her. Instead, Willa Dean cleaned and cooked for Wes. And Willa Dean upheld all the rules that Wes set in place. One of those rules was to remain stoic and straight-faced as much as possible. Because of this, Diane grew used to shielding her true emotions. Diane began the habit of laughing anytime she was faced with a negative emotion, a habit that would last her entire life. The Fredrickson family also enforced conservative values by regularly attending Baptist church and encouraging the children to dress modestly. The Fredrickson household was a strict one where Elizabeth received little affection. As a warning, we're about to discuss some elements of sexual assault that might be upsetting to some listeners. She has since recanted these statements, but in the 1980s, Diane claimed that her father, Wes, molested her. In her book, Small Sacrifices, writer Anne Rule tells the story of Diane's life. 
Rule details Diane's confusion surrounding her incestuous, abusive relationship with her father. Rule writes that she, quote, could not separate sex from terror and power and pleasure, and she could not understand the sensations she felt, end quote. Diane has since said that she made up these stories about her father. But Diane also often did what she called blanking out uncomfortable memories by pretending they never happened. She's also changed stories about her own life. Whether or not there was sexual abuse in Diane's home, it was clear that she felt she had a difficult childhood and strained, complicated relationships with her parents. By the time Diane reached age 14 in 1969, she seemed determined to distance herself from them. That's when she started going by Diane instead of Elizabeth. She cut her hair short and bleached it blonde. She started wearing more provocative, fashionable clothing. Diane also began to show more of an interest in boys. When she was 15, she started dating Stephen Downs, who lived across the street from her. Wes and Willa Dean did not approve of Stephen, with his long hair and casual clothing, and they especially did not approve of Diane and Stephen being sexually active. But that only pushed rebellious Diane, who was eager to get out of her parents' home, further into Stephen's arms. Not only did Stephen provide relief from everything Diane hated about her parents, but Stephen also gave Diane a power she never knew before. He made Diane feel like she was pretty, like she could be loved and protected. She loved the strength she harnessed through their sexual relationship. When Diane and Stephen graduated from high school, they remained a couple, even though they went down separate paths. Stephen joined the Navy, while Diane enrolled in Pacific Coast Bible College. Diane was invigorated by her time in college because for the first time she felt popular, so popular that she began several sexual relationships with different students. Once again, Diane found gratification from sex. Diane pushed the limits of what Bible college would allow and was eventually expelled for promiscuity in 1973. Diane found herself back in her least favorite place, her parents' home, and she was desperate to get out. After Stephen finished his Navy tour, he moved back to Arizona, and Diane spent as much time with him as possible, often staying at his house. She saw her relationship with Stephen as her way out, but in actuality, she wasn't gaining independence whatsoever. Rather, she was just moving from one man's home to another, from her father's home to Stephen's, which isn't surprising given her upbringing. Diane's main role model was Willa Dean, and Willa Dean had demonstrated for Diane that a woman needed a man to survive. According to the Handbook of Girls and Women's Psychological Health by Judith Worrell and Carol D. Goodhart, mothers tend to socialize their daughters to fulfill domestic roles by teaching them to value obedience and responsibility. They write in their book, quote, by giving more directives and limiting autonomy, mothers of daughters may be communicating to them that they are less able to take charge, solve problems, and take action on their own, and that it is more appropriate to leave those behaviors to the domain of men." End quote. It's likely that because Diane's mother deferred to her father and that both parents were domineering, Diane felt her life wasn't completely hers to control. She looked to Stephen to guide her. One night when Diane was 18, she didn't come home to her parents after a date. Wes was not happy, and so he showed up at Stephen's door with a shotgun, warning Stephen to marry his daughter or else. 
One week later, Diane and Stephen were married by a justice of the peace on November 13, 1973. If they had a honeymoon phase at all, it was very short-lived. Two weeks after their wedding, Stephen went on a date with another woman, saying that he had made the date a month earlier and needed to keep it. He even had Diane press his pants for the date. Stephen went out and didn't come home until 3 a.m., claiming that his car had broken down. But Diane knew what he was really up to. Diane had married Stephen to get the love and attention she had so desired growing up. But it was clear that Stephen didn't love her as she thought he did. Diane would have to find the love she so desperately needed some other way. And that meant breaking her vows and the law. In a moment, we'll see the beginning of Diane's deadly criminal career. Now, back to the story. Very soon after Stephen and Diane's marriage in November of 1973, the two 18-year-olds found themselves unhappy. Stephen failed to be the sort of husband the new Mrs. Diane Downs had hoped for. In addition to his roving eye, he told Diane that he wanted to wait a few years before starting a family. But Diane wouldn't have any of that. According to Anne Rule in Small Sacrifices, Diane was determined to find another way to attain the singular love and devotion that Stephen denied her. Without telling Stephen, she easily became pregnant in 1974, at age 19, and was ecstatic. During her pregnancy, Diane felt serene and complete. She described her fetus as pure love, something that was an extension of herself. And that happiness continued when Diane's first child, Christy Ann, was born. Diane was truly happy. But the more she loved Christy, the more she was repulsed by Stephen. Stephen bounced from job to job, and the family's financial situation was shaky. Stephen would often send Diane and baby Christy to Wes and Willadine because he couldn't afford to take care of them. So once again, just as she had during her childhood, Diane spent much of her time in transit. Once again, Diane found herself deeply unhappy. So she turned to the one thing that had ever made her feel joy. She got pregnant again. Diane's second child, Cheryl Lynn Downs, was born on January 10, 1976. She was a difficult baby from the moment of her first breath. She cried all night and Diane had trouble finding the right way to comfort her. After Cheryl, both Diane and Stephen agreed that they couldn't afford to have another child, neither financially nor emotionally, and so Stephen got a vasectomy. However, the operation didn't take, and Diane became pregnant for the third time. Diane agreed with Stephen that a third child would be a mistake, and so she got an abortion. For the next two years, between 1976 and 78, the Downs family life was turbulent. Stephen worked seasonal jobs in different areas around Arizona, so the family moved often. He also continued his affairs and would act coldly toward Diane, pushing her even further away from him. Diane spent much of this time traveling with her daughters, away from Stephen. She spent some time with her parents, who had moved to Stockton, California, but when she couldn't find work there, her parents sent her back to Stephen. She also spent time with her sister in Flagstaff, Arizona, and at one point she ran off with her daughters to stay with her uncle in Texas. 
Stephen only discovered this by looking at their phone bills and noticing that Diane had made several calls to Texas before she left. Despite this erratic behavior, the couple remained married. Stephen would take Diane back when she ran away, and Diane would ignore Stephen's infidelity. They were unhappy, but they couldn't afford to divorce. In 1977, the family of four was settled in Mesa, Arizona, and it was while living in Arizona that Diane had a revelation. She was visiting a fair where there was a right-to-life booth. She saw an image of a fetus at six weeks, and Diane was reminded of her own abortion, which also occurred at six weeks. That image showed a fetus with the beginnings of body parts forming. Something hit Diane. She saw this fetus as a person, and suddenly felt that her aborted fetus had been a human being that she killed. In a 2000 study by the American Medical Association, researchers found that women with a history of depression and other issues with mental health were more likely to have negative emotions related to their abortions, including regret. They also found that younger women and women who had multiple children at the time of their abortion were more likely to have negative feelings about their abortions. Pre-existing mental health issues, young age, and multiple children were all factors for Diane. Seeing that image of a fetus at the Right to Life booth likely triggered negative feelings about her abortion, feelings that she struggled to shake. Another study performed at the Université de Toulouse II in France in 2011 found that six weeks after having an abortion, 38% of women reported potential post-traumatic stress disorder. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a stress disorder that some people develop after a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. People affected by it will often react with frightening or irrational thoughts and other symptoms of anxiety. Diane became anxious and projected distorted ideas and feelings onto her unborn fetus. Diane gave that unborn fetus a name, Carrie. Carrie became an obsession for Diane. She decided that she needed to replace Carrie. She needed to conceive again. In 1978, when the Downs were living in Mesa, Arizona, Diane asked Stephen to have his vasectomy reversed, but he refused. She continued to pester him for a year, and he continued to say no. But Diane was never one to let anything stand in the way of what she believed would make her happy. She wasn't going to let Stephen's vasectomy stop her from having another child. She would just have to find another way to obtain sperm. Diane was working as an electrician for the Palm Harbor Mobile Home Company. While she was often morose at home, Diane came alive at work. She was fun and flirty, and she garnered the attention of many of her male co-workers. She had several affairs with men at work, all in the name of genetic research. Diane selected one man who she found to be a good specimen, as she put it, 19-year-old Russ Phillips. She began an affair with him, and the new couple easily conceived a baby. Stephen knew right away that the baby wasn't his. Both Stephen and Russ encouraged Diane to have an abortion, but Diane would hear none of it. She wanted to be pregnant, and she wanted this baby. On December 29, 1979, Diane gave birth to a boy. 
Stephen agreed to raise the baby as his own, and despite his earlier protestations, he immediately loved the little boy. Diane and Stephen named the baby Stephen Daniel Downs and called him Danny for short. Diane, however, was shocked that she had given birth to a boy. Where was the daughter she was supposed to be bringing back to life? Where was her carry? According to the National Institute of Mental Health, PTSD is often accompanied by depression. Diane had seen giving birth to a baby girl as a solution to the trauma she was feeling. When she failed to do so and instead gave birth to Danny, she was distressed and depression set in. With Danny's arrival to the Downs home also came another wave of sadness for Diane. As happy as she had been when she was pregnant, she was deeply unhappy as a wife and mother. Diane would grow frustrated when her children couldn't provide her with the unconditional, perfect love she so desired. She often let out her sadness and rage on her children. Diane admitted to grabbing her children by the shoulders and screaming at them often. In Diane's words from her 1982 essay about abuse, quote, I wish we could stop this vicious cycle. If we could only take a whole generation and stop child abuse, we could wipe out the plague. End quote. One day in April 1980, while Diane and her family of five were living in Chandler, Arizona, she watched a segment on The Donahue Show that featured people who had participated in or were looking for a surrogate parent. One woman was infertile and wanted to use her husband's sperm to have a surrogate mother bear her husband's child. Diane remembered the joy she felt during her pregnancies, and it dawned on her she could be the surrogate this couple was looking for. She wrote to the Kentucky Surrogate Parenting Clinic listed on the show. She told them she was the perfect candidate to be a surrogate mother. Of course, Diane lied and omitted facts in order to paint the portrait of herself as a vision of motherhood. She claimed that her abortion had actually been a miscarriage and that her marriage was solid. It worked. On paper, Diane seemed like the ideal surrogate mother and the clinic moved forward with Diane in the selection process. Diane was ecstatic, not only to find out that she'd been moving forward, but that surrogates were paid $10,000. That would be enough for her to move out and finally leave Stephen. The next step in the surrogacy process was going through psychiatric evaluation to make sure that Diane was mentally capable of having a child and giving it away. After examining her, the first psychiatrist was doubtful that Diane would be up to the task. That psychiatrist wrote in his report that there was considerable neurotic interplay in Diane's total adjustment to life, and so he recommended further testing. Ten standard tests were administered on Diane. She excelled in the IQ tests and placed in the superior range of intelligence. However, she did not do so well on tests where she was supposed to show social cause-and-effect reasoning. The clinical psychologist administering this battery of tests wrote that the findings were consistent with, but not absolutely diagnostic, of a major psychopathology. Basically, it seemed like Diane had psychological problems, but it was unclear what exactly those problems were. She was an enigma to the examiners. In the report, the examiners wrote, A clear-cut neurotic picture is not present. This individual has poor ability to express anger in a modulated fashion and tends to have poor behavioral controls. 
In January 1981, the testing continued with another psychiatrist. This time, the doctor noted that Diane was hypertalkative, and she could shut her emotions on and off at will. She was also diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder. According to the DSM-5, people with histrionic personality disorder are prone to overly seek attention and to overreact to situations. They often feel unappreciated when they're not the center of attention and will go to great lengths to seek approval. This attention-seeking may be acted out in odd ways, such as overt sexual seductiveness with inappropriate partners. Diane had already demonstrated inappropriate sexual relationships with her co-workers, and her determination to be a surrogate was clearly her way of seeking attention and feeling important. Yet, despite this diagnosis, Diane passed her psychiatric evaluation. She had been approved to be a surrogate mother. Now all Diane had to do was wait to be matched with a family. While Diane waited to be paired with a couple and anticipated a $10,000 paycheck, her own marriage finally dissolved. After years of their rocky relationship, Diane and Stephen's divorce was filed and finalized in 1980 with little fanfare. It ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. But Diane was not without a partner for long. In fact, once her marriage was over, she had a string of lovers. Diane had told several psychologists and psychiatrists during her battery of tests that she disliked sex. So most likely, she didn't move from man to man because she got any real pleasure from them. Instead, she constantly pursued new relationships because she desired attention from as many people as possible. At this point, Diane worked as a postal worker for the Chandler Post Office, and she met one boyfriend there, Mac Richmond. In the summer of 1981, two weeks after Stephen moved out, Mac and his two daughters moved in. However, Mac found that Diane was a completely different person at home than she was at work. He soon found her to be a cruel, nasty mother and mentally unstable. It was a glimmer into the side of Diane that would soon drive her to murder. Next, we'll meet the lover who would turn Diane deadly. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1980, Diane divorced Stephen Downs, and her new boyfriend, Mac Richmond, and his two daughters quickly moved in. But Mac soon realized that Diane was not the person she had appeared to be. At work, Diane was lighthearted and fun. At home, she was angry and cruel. According to Mac, she often called her children demeaning names. She would farm the children off to babysitters. Or if a babysitter couldn't be found, she would leave six-year-old Christy in charge. A neighbor reported that Cheryl would often go to her house asking for food because her mother hadn't fed her and she didn't know where Diane was. By the fall of 1981, Mac had had enough of Diane, and he left her. But Diane had other things on her mind. While she was with Mac, she had been matched with a family looking for a surrogate. And now it was finally time to go to Kentucky and get inseminated. Diane easily conceived, and she went back home to Arizona as happy as could be, literally filled with new life. Diane was always happiest when she was pregnant, and this time was no exception. But while Diane was on a high, her children were not faring quite as well. 
According to neighbors and Diane's co-workers, the mistreatment Mac observed was not uncommon. Diane often left the children alone, dressed them improperly for winter weather, and occasionally hit them. But Diane didn't think she was doing anything wrong. She saw herself as a good mother, someone who was meant to bring children into the world. Diane's surrogate pregnancy went off without a hitch. She gave birth to a baby girl and gladly relinquished the child to her new parents in Kentucky in the summer of 1982. Diane then returned to Arizona, bought a mobile home for her and her children, and continued working at the post office. Not only was the post office a steady source of income for Diane, but it also provided her with a steady roster of lovers. Diane seduced many of the men who worked with her at the post office. Almost all of them married. But none of these relationships lasted very long. Diane struggled with intimacy, and though she was easily available and flirtatious at the start of these relationships, she would always eventually release her facade and push the men away. That is, until she began her affair with Louis Stanton Lewiston. Lou Lewiston and his wife, Nora, moved to Chandler, Arizona in the fall of 1981. Their marriage was on the rocks. They'd been living in Texas, but Nora had convinced him to move to Arizona where she had grown up. Lou was not happy to have been uprooted. And so when he got a job at the post office and met Diane there, he was happy to have a distraction from his wife. Lou's marriage to Nora was his second, and during his previous marriage, he had affairs. Those had been easygoing flings, and so he thought a brief, unattached affair with Diane might make him feel better about his situation. He saw their interactions as lighthearted and carefree. Diane, however, did not. She became intensely infatuated with Lou, who had no understanding of the obsession that lay underneath Diane's smiling facade. Lou and Diane's affair progressed into more serious territory throughout the first half of 1982. Diane kept a diary, and in it she methodically marked down all the days she saw Lou. Those days became more and more frequent. Diane was tightly wound, pinning all her hopes for happiness on him. She wrote in her diary about Lou every day, referring to what she felt as pure love and heart love, Her obsession with Lou grew, with no limit in sight. As someone with a histrionic personality disorder, the attention Lou gave Diane was everything she needed to feel appreciated and truly alive. When Lou pulled away even the slightest bit, Diane made sure to draw him back in. Stephen reached out to Diane to reconcile their relationship, and Lou told her to go back to her ex-husband. But Diane would hear nothing of it. She only wanted Lou, and Lou was not strong enough to deny her, so their affair continued. In the fall of 1982, Diane traveled to Kentucky to be inseminated as a surrogate mother again. This time she did not conceive, but she wasn't too upset about it. She was more concerned with getting back home to Lou anyway. However, when her plane arrived in Arizona, Lou wasn't waiting for her at the gate. Instead, she found Stephen, and she grew hysterical. A couple weeks earlier, Diane and Stephen had had a physical fight over possibly reconciling. Stephen wanted her. Diane wanted Lou. Needless to say, Stephen was absolutely the last person she wanted to see when she landed in Arizona. On the drive home, Diane began scraping at her face and kicking him. 
Due to Diane's histrionic personality disorder, she often had rapidly shifting emotional states that didn't have a hold in reality. In her head, Stephen's presence meant that Lou had abandoned her, and she went berserk. Stephen and Diane returned to Diane's home, where she locked herself in the bathroom with a gun. Diane threatened to kill both herself and Stephen. A gun fired behind the closed bathroom door. Stephen was terrified. He slammed into the door and busted open, only to find Diane sitting on the edge of the bathtub in front of a bullet hole she had created in the floor. Stephen grabbed the gun from her. She wasn't harmed, but Diane was deeply depressed. She had given everything to Lou, and she felt abandoned by him when she didn't see him at the airport. Diane didn't feel abandoned for long, though. Even though he tried to break things off multiple times, Lou repeatedly returned to Diane. Lou and Diane had an odd back and forth, a passionate pas de deux that was both confusing and captivating. Lou told her he wouldn't leave his wife, but he was still drawn to her and found it hard to let her go. In Lou's own words, quote, no one could believe how that woman could talk could promise and coax and argue unless he'd been involved with her. I was with her all the time. She talked and talked, and she hardly ever took a breath." End quote. One night in February 1983, Diane got close to winning Lou for good. Diane wrote in her diary, quote, I could hardly believe my ears today. Lou said he would live in the same house with my kids and me, of course. Then he said he would have to marry my ass. But before I get too excited, I'll wait a while. He could change his mind. I hope he doesn't. I sure love him." End quote. Lou was usually one to avoid conflict, so it's likely that he simply gave her a waffling answer to a proposal without meaning to truly commit. During this time with Lou, Diane wrote in her diary with a very immature tone. Several entries detailed how she knew deep in her heart that Lou's wife, Nora, was the one standing in the way of her relationship. Diane seemed to truly believe this, even though Lou himself had told her that he wanted to remain married to his wife. But Diane still wrote that she cherished all the moments Lou stole away to be with her, citing the fact that they were in pure love. Diane also wrote about how she would spend hours watching music videos on MTV, a TV network that at the time played music videos for most of the day and was targeted at teenagers. She claimed that many of the songs reminded her of her relationship with Lou, and she would play the songs over and over, thinking of him like a schoolgirl with a crush. Irrational thought is a major symptom of histrionic personality disorder, and Diane was clearly not thinking rationally at this point. Diane even got a tattoo in honor of her love and devotion to Lou Lewiston. She had her right shoulder emblazoned with a huge red rose, a symbol she meant to represent the pure love she and Lou shared. His name framed the bottom of the image. Diane's rationale was that now, if another man ever looked at her, he would see Lou's mark on her and know that she belonged to him. Diane desperately wanted Lou to get a matching tattoo to signify that they belonged to each other, but Lou refused. Diane's tattoo made him uncomfortable, and he did not want to mark himself the same way. In early 1983, Lou took a trip to Texas without telling Diane. Diane took this to mean that Lou had left her for good, and she was absolutely distraught. 
she leapt to action. Diane requested a job transfer from the post office in Chandler, Arizona, to a post office in Oregon, where her parents Wes and Willa Dean were living. But Lou was only gone for a two-week vacation. When he returned to Arizona, he resumed his affair with Diane, and she was thrilled to reunite. They were once again happy together. But now there was a cloud hanging over them. Diane's transfer request had already gone through, and she was set to leave for Oregon in two and a half weeks. Lou seemed devastated to see Diane go. He even gave her his gold chain and asked her to wear it. He said it would mark her as Lou's woman. As their days together in Arizona trickled away, Lou saw their relationship through rose-tinted glasses. Diane was good to him, and he'd miss having her there to dote on him and take care of him. He even agreed to get a rose tattoo that matched Diane's. His was placed on his left arm. He still wouldn't get Diane's name tattooed on his skin, but the rose was enough for Diane to believe that they'd be able to be happy together in Oregon. Lou never fully committed to going to Oregon with Diane, though. He once claimed that he repeatedly told her, if it's meant to be, it will be. Diane believed it was meant to be. She left for Oregon, Lou's necklace dangling around her neck, confident that Lou would be close behind her. And initially, he may have planned to follow Diane north. But once she was gone and no longer buzzing around him, Lou began to see his life with newfound clarity. He realized he didn't want to be with Diane and was determined to save his marriage. Diane called Lou and sent him packages, but he tried to avoid her. He ignored her calls and refused her mail. He even sent back a package of roses unopened. But Diane was undeterred. She obsessively wrote in her diary, penning long letters to Lou that she would never actually send. She wrote, Nobody else can fill your empty place in my bed. Or my heart. I guess I really have been bewitched. I wish you'd come around. Diane believed that Oregon was a paradise where she and Lou could finally be happy together. She continued to contact Lou until mid-April 1983, when he finally called her to say it was over. Some while back, Diane had lent Lou $500, and she said she would know their relationship was truly over once she received the money back. Lou wrote her a check for the full amount and mailed it. To Lou's surprise, Diane cashed the check. When she didn't even call to say thank you, he hoped that the affair was finally over. Until she showed up in Arizona on April 28, 1983, one week since Lou told Diane it was officially over. In a statement Diane gave to the police later, she said she took off the gold chain and told Lou, it's not mine to keep, and if you don't want me, if you don't want me to be Lou's woman anymore, then I shouldn't have it. Lou told her he wasn't going to go to Oregon, that he didn't want to be a father. Diane said she loved him. They stood staring at each other for a bit, and then just went their separate ways. Lou continued with his life in Arizona, and Diane went back to Oregon. The next time they'd speak would be when Diane called Lou from the hospital, the night her children were shot. Back in Oregon, Diane wrote in her diary as if nothing had changed. She continued to obsessively write to Lou in her diary. And then, very suddenly, the tone of her diary entries shifted. 
two weeks after her trip to Arizona, Diane's children, Christy, Cheryl, and Danny, became the focus of each day's entry. On May 11th, Diane wrote, quote, Well, sweetie, I love talking to you, but I have my own life here. I have three beautiful children that I love more than anyone else. I think I even love them more than you now, end quote. Diane was prone to big mood swings, but this shift in focus from Lou to her children in her diary was one of her biggest. Diane's writing made it seem like she had just discovered her children, as if she hadn't been mothering them for years. The next few days of diary entries read like a tribute to motherhood. Diane writes of trips to the beach and playing lots of games with her kids, things she hadn't done with them before. Yet, along with the pleasant memories, there's a frantic anxiety in Diane's writing. She writes that she found a brass unicorn that she gave to her children and insisted on getting it engraved with a May 1983 date. What did she need to memorialize? Perhaps Diane was simply dedicated to being a good mother to her children. Or perhaps Diane was so frantic because she knew that these were the last days before the Downs' children's lives would be destroyed. In hindsight, it's clear that Diane's manic obsession with her children was leading right up to the day that they were shot on May 19, 1983. Was Diane Downs just an emotionally stunted mother whose children fell victim to a tragic but random crime? Or was Diane a wounded woman pushed to horrific lows all in the name of feeding her obsession with love? Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals, Next week, in part two, we'll talk about the murder, the police investigation, and Diane's prison escape. You can find more female criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to support the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Sarah Halley Corey and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 